0: podcast, and here's your host Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast, December fourth. This is Ed McGrogan with Steve Tigner here in New York. We're right in the uh, middle. If it might even be past the halfway point of the uh, off season, I, I hate to tell you, but um, basically, not really that too far away from things getting started up again. But still, definitely. In the middle of everything, some news that we wanted to run down that that's caught our attention, made some headlines. Um, First, we wanted to mention the uh, exhibitions, since this is a time of year where you do see these. You actually um, may mention this in your mailbag, kind of your your really your theory on exhibitions, and if you just wanted to kind of Mm -hmm. go over that for maybe yeah, you hear you know
1: you hear a lot of people. You know, talk about how the top players complain about this, how the season is too long, and then they go play exhibitions. Um, I don't really have a problem. I might have a problem with that if they played nonstop through the through the um, off season, but I don't really have a problem with what Nadal and Djokovic just did. It's pretty much the same thing, similar to what Federer did last year. He made a trip to they made a trip to South Af- uh, South America, um, Chile and Argentina for about ten days after the um, World Tour Finals and the Davis Cup. And you know it's a it's a chance to have tennis. Those guys go where, somewhere where they're, they're um, they don't usually go, and they you know play. I mean, essentially they play. It's not like playing a tournament or a match. It's really like playing a practice set. It really isn't that physically demanding. It's not like they're going out. It's not. I don't think it's hypocritical of them to say the season should be shorter, and then they're they're playing a few exhibitions and. Also, the amount of money involved—it's tough to criticize Nadal. This is, yeah,
0: this is actually what I was going to say. I, mean, I, I think it, I think you can actually, in, in when you in some exhibitions and things of like that, you, I think there's reason maybe to kind of slam some of the players for it. But the reports had this at Rafa getting 10 million, Federer the previous year getting 12 million, and and I mean I don't think you can't blame anybody one bit for that for really that kind of money. This is practically about. You know, for Roth, a 10 mil was about two thirds of what he made this entire season, which was, you know, I'm sure one of the two or three best, you know, money wise he's done in his career, and, and he's going to make that in a week. And and just from a you know purely practical reason, there's you know there's no reason to to, to kill Roth on something like this. Yeah,
1: I don't think you know I think it may not look so great that mm-hmm. an athlete makes that much for doing so little, but. If somebody, it's hard to you know if you put yourself in that position, you can get you can make ten million dollars for for um, four days of work. Then it, you know, I don't think you can. It's hard to criticize that.
0: Yeah, and and what I also took away you know really from from seeing a figure like that and, and thinking about really this past year in, in tennis where you saw you know the players continually getting some more gains from the the tournaments really the biggest tournaments you know, the slams had increases in prize money um, i'm i'm almost certain the Australian Open coming up is going to have some more of that rolled into it you know, indian wells made huge concessions there was really a, a time where we were wondering kind of where the players in that event were if they were going to square off in any way um, and i think it just really talks to kind of really how top-heavy the the men's tour specifically is really the kind of cost of doing business with, you know, to get these ultimate drawing cards involved here. And it it, it also, I think about the events, it really does show that kind of gap between the haves and, and the have-not tournaments, and it, it does seem like it will continue to keep growing apart, you know, with these top players becoming increasingly more selective of what they can do, and they can really afford to because they... Seem to have the leverage and can call the shots on a lot of these things, and I think, I think the slams and and these you know masters tournaments are pretty fortunate in a way that they they have this brand behind them that ultimately sort of compels the players to have to come to them, or, or maybe you know maybe we would be in a situation where it's kind of like in the older days where, you know, really it's really the the players instead of a, a tour mandating where they play. So yeah, I
1: think you know. The Grand Slams have the, um, you know, they have the prestige that brings the the players and the Masters. They're mandatory, so that saves them from having from having to pay appearance fees, which is a which is, you know, that should that is an essential part of why the tour is strong now, because um, you force these guys, you have these guys always playing in the same tournaments. I would say that while it's top heavy. And, and this era has really rewarded those top 4 guys you know especially the top 3 guys Federer Nadal and Djokovic they've they have made good use of it in using their leverage to get to get raises for the lower ranked players at the grand slams at least you know it sort of shows that you know they're, it took their power or their fame to really you know and they banded together With the former ATP chief um, Brad Druitt, and and that power was enough to get more money for other players at at the Grand Slams. You know, lower ranked players. You know, whether that whether that's a great model for you know how you how you fight inequality. You know, maybe not. But it. But they have done things. They have helped out and sort of helped do what they can to elevate the rest of the tour as well mm-hmm. use some yeah. of that use some of that fame or use some of that power
0: i thought it was a good move speaking of Drew, for shanghai to name a court after him i believe that's where it was done and uh yeah he was
1: the tournament director there he really pioneered that asian circuit
0: yeah and i think that's a good uh good memo for you know whatever at some point the usda is going to rename that court 17 into something you have to assume i think that's a really good platform to go on and uh i just was thinking of that when you mentioned Druitt there. Speaking actually of the ATP CEO, that's another uh, news item that came about. Chris Kermode was um, named the CEO. Druitt, of course, um, passed earlier this year, and Kermode comes in. Um, reports had it that there was so, kind of some division over who really should should leave the tour um, going forward. Kermode, is a C- he is a first tour CEO from Europe they've ever had, um, which seems prudent considering the players the strong amount of players that are there the great number of tournaments there. Um, I mean you've mentioned before just how many are in just in France alone and you know there's obviously across the continent. He is. Was the tournament director of Queens Club, the managing director of the World Tour Finals, so he's had his you know his hands all over the tour already. But all I've really heard of the guy, besides kind of this resume, um, is that he's a, a big supporter of doubles. Actually, the Bryan's both went out of their way to mention this, that um, especially saying that doubles has given such a, a high profile in at the year-end event. So it seems like a pretty good guy to have in for kind of all those reasons and um you know I don't know if you have any thoughts on it or about him but it's I think it's a nice move for the tour based on you know this dossier alone yeah I
1: think everyone is pretty happy and pretty um optimistic at the moment about about him the you know he was recruited by an former CEO Etienne Deviller he he thought highly of him immediately as an organizer he knows tennis um the Queen's Club is a popular event and there's no question that the the best I would say the best run new tournament of the last ten years or so, most successful, has to be that the ATP you know World Tour Finals in London that, that he was part of. And they did a great job of of giving doubles an equal platform with singles, so all of that, you know, all of that looks good. Um it took them a while to to decide, like you said, and there were a bunch of there are a number of candidates, but um I think as far as competence goes, and a, and a good f- sort of face, both for players and for the corporate side, he's, you know, he f- he fits well.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important with, especially what we were just talking about, of the really the politics and the money involved of the tour, that, you know, when, when De Villiers was in there, and also when um, the Nike, um, who, what was his name? Sorry. The um, man
1: who escapes, whose name escapes all of us.
0: Yes. When both of those two including gentlemen me. were in, sorry, <laughs> including me. Yes, you know when those two were in, I think you, I think as fans and media, we definitely got a like a palpable sense of there was really that, not necessarily distrust, but sort of a dislike, a disconnect between the the players and uh, the management really of the tour, and I think that really trickled down in, into I think just the you know the image of the ATP, the image of men's tennis as a whole, where. You know, it's a sport that already suffers from so many different pockets of people having, you know, having their hands in what goes on, and to 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 establish any sort of continuity and to keep building that trust, especially as the tours have tried to keep, um, you know, building up its its financial really status. I think it's a, a huge thing going forward, and. Um and it's uh and I think that that's what the WTA has kind of done going forward You with um oh my gosh. Stacy Allister Yeah. And I think I think we've seen the WTA make a lot of financial moves, um, strong moves recently. I think that's where the ATP has been and to keep it going with Kermode, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think course. you can
1: see how important that job is with, with Brad Druitt He he had the trust of the of the players and, and things happened when that when those you know when those two came together that they they were able to get things done so it's an important position um, you know and it it is important that they have the right guy in there yeah and also Judy Murray thinks he's the best looking tournament director of all so
0: yeah. that can't hurt I guess no I don't think so <laughs> um, to the women actually uh, with this last item there has been quite a few coaching moves should be a surprise to no one over this time of year. Um, we will mention just in passing Richard Gasquet, whose coach left him one day before the season ended. He reportedly will have uh, Sergey Bruguera as his coach. There were other moves as well. Um, Laurel Robson hires Jesse Witten, who you might remember had a sort of a fairy tale second or third round run a couple of years ago at the open. He took a set off Djokovic, I'm pretty sure, and Armstrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the two other more high-profile moves, Thomas Hogstad goes with Wozniacki and Sharapova goes with Sven Grunfeld. Um, You know, maybe which of those kind of sticks out right away to you?
1: I guess right away you look at um, Wozniacki and Hogstead because, you know, Hogstead really helped um, resurrect, not resurrect, but really helped Sharapova get back to the top of of her game and back at the top of the rankings, they were a team throughout this latest sort of resurgence of hers, and she left him to try an experiment with Jimmy Connors, which obviously didn't work. So now she was sort of left without, without anybody because Hogstead went off when, went with Wozniacki. I think Hogstead could be a really good choice for Wozniacki. It depends on it's always depended with her on how much her father will get out of the quote unquote coach his way and not just sort of t- you know take over that job because you know, he you, says he will. You know, for
0: time. for Wozniacki, what do you what do you kind of see as you know, we've seen her as obviously the number one, we've seen her in the two years since then, and we've seen the tour move around her and, and what those players have been doing. I mean, what kind of ceiling do you really put on Wozniacki now, still young, um, you know, with a new voice really and, and obviously the, the her father that's as you mentioned a, a big element of it. But really you know, is this is this uh, someone who you see kind of returning really to you know her think, elite days? Because I think it's decidedly said now that I don't think many people are considering her in that elite class yeah. right now.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since she was up there. She's really, you know, not been at the top tier the past couple of years. She didn't even make the season-ending championships this time. But I think she could um, not not get back to number one, but get back into the top 5 and and do more at the grand slams because she doesn't use she's a good athlete, she's fast, she um she, you know, she's still young. She's you know, 22 or 23 and I think she's one player who really hasn't used all, you know, all of her athletic talent. She's you know, she's a great runner, great defender, but she could do a lot more and I think Hogstead is a guy who's a pretty hard worker himself and a hard and demands a lot could could um, depending on the situation with her father and and what, whatever else in her personal life, I think he could he could make a difference. And she, I think she does. There is a you know a better future, better higher rank, higher ranking f- possible for her.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, as for Sharapova and groenfeld I think that situation. I think I think whatever you think of Gronfeld, I think her coaching situation needed to be kind of stabilized immediately after that. Connor's really a disaster. There it just one it was almost like a, a joke the way it, it all played out. And, you know, he's someone who's worked with Anna Ivanovich in the past. Um another player who like has really had those big serving blocks, those issues. You know, obviously when Ivanovich was with Groenfeld, I think that was not as persistent and not as evident as it has become Um, but to have that experience with her, you know, the, at that time, the expectations are really kind of a slam or, or, you know, that's really the goal. It's nothing kind of less than that. So it seems like the right mind for Sharapova in terms of that's really what the goals are. And at at this point in her career, clearly that's what it is. Um, but I think just to get someone in there fresh before the start of the season, and it really remains to be seen how Sharapova comes back after her injuries too so she's really I think one of the biggest actually wild cards for as consistent as she was for most of this year I think she's a really big wild card for 2014 yeah if,
1: if, you know she only won a couple matches um maybe even just one match after she lost the French open finals to Serena. I know she was injured but also had the, I also had the feeling that she was she needed a break um, the the obviously the the time with Connors was a huge waste of time for her, and I think stopped all of her momentum in the in the middle of the year. Um, and I think after that sort of wild choice of Connors, she went with a pretty safe choice of Groenfeld. He's a guy who's been around, coached a lot of different people. He's part of the Adidas group. He's helped out with, you know, with multiple players. He's worked with, you know, everyone from Federer to Ivanovic. He's kind of a really known quantity on the tour. Um, he's, I think I don't think he's a I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to change her game completely. Or, you know, he's definitely not an out-of-the-box choice. But I think she needed a coach. I, it's hard to see Sharapova without somebody in her corner. And you know, this was—I guess it's—it's it's good that she she could go to somebody like Groenfeld.
0: You think Florida State or Ohio State loses this weekend? After last um,
1: week, we did talk about. This I night. hope so.
0: You hope so? What? <laughs> You hope Ohio hope, State loses? I
1: hope Ohio State loses. I don't think they really belong. I'm not that impressed by Florida State either, so. I'm rooting for smoking Auburn like after a, the past couple like weeks. like a Penn Stater, actually. Yeah, yeah right. True. Yeah.
0: Good. All right. We will be back um, later on with more podcasts. Also, Steve Tigner, Steve, I should say, he's in the room with me, will have his top ten match countdown, your long-awaited countdown, mm-hmm. beginning next week, multi-week, videos of if as long as YouTube cooperates with yeah. us. So. Check those out and um, come back next time. Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.